guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing good this week. How are you? Oh, wow. I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> yes. And thank you to everyone who reached out to Melissa last week um, to ask In my her time how she was need. doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I totally forgot to even ask her how she was doing. So much appreciated. Um, <laughs> so before we get into the episode this week, we are super excited to share with you a new podcast we know our listeners will love that is Equal Parts Friendship, Nostalgia, and Research on Unsolved Stories. And that show is called Resolved Mysteries Podcast. Resolved Mysteries podcast follows the 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by The Robert Stack, and provides the most recent updates on each segment. The hosts are three friends who have a love for true crime, canned wine, and the unsolved. They cover stories that range from the very silly to the truly heartbreaking. I remember always being most freaked out when there was a missing person story on Unsolved Mysteries, and even the alien ones, really all of them freaked me out. These three fiery women provide an in-depth research that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolved Mysteries Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join them and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. So this week's story is the tale of an infamous con man that fooled countless people on what would become a 30-year run full of lies and false identities. His story has fascinated millions and has been featured in countless prestigious magazine and news outlets, as well as in a few documentaries, including one that ran on Netflix, but I checked and it is no longer there. This is the story of Clark Rockefeller, an heir to the great Rockefeller fortune. Or was he? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) This week, we're going to break down the details of this man's bizarre web of lies and the events that led to his undoing. But first, we're going to tell you a little about where everything came crashing down for Clark in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So this week's story takes place in Boston, and Boston is the capital and most populous city of the state of Massachusetts, with a population of 685,094 as of the 2017 census. On January 15th, 1919, this is a very interesting story to me, there was a storage tank that held more than 2 million gallons of molasses that actually burst in Boston, which set a giant wave of the hot syrupy substance through the northern part of Boston. It actually killed 21 people. Oh my gosh, what a way to go. (laughs) But it injured over 100 and it made it the worst molasses-related accident in history. I don't know what number two is, (laughs) but whoa, (laughs) crazy. So did you know that while Massachusetts started giving out driver's licenses and car registration plates in 1903, it did not actually make people take driving tests. They actually didn't start taking driving tests until 1920. And imagine what a wild ride, all pun intended, that 17-year gap was when everybody's (laughs) just driving around. You got a license for that? Absolutely. Are you two? I'm five. (laughs) You know, doesn't matter. Nobody cares. So lots of entertainers and historical figures were born in the city of Boston, including the Wahlberg brothers, Benjamin Franklin, Matt Damon, Edgar Allan Poe, Temple Grandin, and of course, survivors, Boston Rob. And finally, you can't talk about Boston the city without thinking of Boston the band. They were huge in the 70s and 80s and are still big today in my heart. And I've got more than a feeling that I'll have peace of mind when Google This City is over. And now to you, Amanda. <laughs> Do you- <laughs> Those are all Boston songs. Even Amanda. I was so excited I got to pull Amanda. <laughs> Let 
we have people, this. It was perfect. People are going to come for you. Nobody knows me as Amanda. That's so funny. Um, I, that was the first sign that that had to be a song. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah, so my I have a friend from Boston who actually is the one who said that we should do this story, even though it's kind of a well-known story. But he was like, hey, you should do this on your podcast. So, And then also said very specifically that I should give him a shout out on the show. So hi, Matt. Thank you for this week's suggestion. We're going to do the show on this lovely Clark Rockefeller character. So this is actually one of those stories that is best told by starting at the end and working your way back to the beginning to figure out exactly how our subject ended up in this life-altering predicament that landed him a 27-year prison sentence. In the summer of 2008, Clark Rockefeller was living the dream. He was very well known in Beacon Hill, which is a historical neighborhood in Boston, where he lived in a $2.7 million townhome with his wife, Sandra, and their young daughter, Ray. The neighborhood is one of the wealthiest and most desirable in the city, with homes being valued at over $1,200 per square foot. So it was no surprise that a member of the Rockefeller family would make this neighborhood their home. No kidding. Yeah. I couldn't even believe that whenever I saw that. I'm like, yeah, $120? That's crazy. I don't even know what like average square foot price is on a home, but oh, it's not that. dollars per square foot seems like a lot to me. <laughs> I'll buy two square feet, please. <laughs> <laughs> Clark was a member of the Algonquin Club, which is an exclusive social club that has hosted some of the most distinguished men in history. Everywhere Clark went, doors were open for him, and he was greeted warmly. So it seemed rather shocking that a man of such high standing would be at the center of a kidnapping investigation involving his own daughter. As it would turn out, life was not exactly perfect for Clark, and he had been under mounting suspicion of his wife, Sandra, for quite some time. Clark, who was allegedly heir to an epic fortune, apparently had been living on his wife's dime since the day they married and had never worked a job of his own, nor did he appear to have any access to the Rockefeller fortune. Sandra and Clark first met in New York City several years prior when Clark was working on Wall Street for a big stock brokerage firm. A co-worker introduced him to Sandy, and the couple hit it off immediately. Sandra was drawn to Clark's charm and intelligence, and also partially to the fact that he had the Rockefeller name. She herself was really no damsel in distress. In fact, she was also wealthy, bringing in over $2 million a year with her career as a corporate executive. She had attended Harvard Business School, so she was extremely bright and dedicated, but in her own words, she was somewhat emotionally immature. She fell hard for Clark, who had told her stories of his successes and things that he was involved in, such as that he was in demand for his rare financial gift and that he was involved in helping poor countries pay off their debts. That's very interesting. (laughs) It feels like something you'd be able to like point to and say, oh, I did this and it would be public knowledge if you're helping countries pay off their debts. I feel yeah. like somebody knows you, you know. I didn't know if he was implying that he was like personally paying off their debt or if he was <laughs> I took just it to like, a new level. <laughs> yeah, or if he was just like a financial advisor. I have no idea. Okay, what that exactly. makes more sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He was saying he was a Rockefeller, so maybe he did mean that he was personally paying debts of a whole entire country. I have no idea. So she was smitten with him, and eventually the couple married and relocated to Boston, where Sandy had taken on a new job. Once the newlyweds were settled in Massachusetts, it didn't take long before their relationship began to show its cracks. Clark was unable to hold down a job and began to fund his extravagant lifestyle on Sandy's income, which he used to purchase expensive art pieces, hand-tailored suits, and antique collector's cars. 
He began telling neighbors and friends that he had sold a business in Canada for over a billion dollars, which even his own wife didn't believe at this point, as he didn't have a billion dollars. And he also didn't appear to have any access, as I said, to the Rockefeller's family wealth. Clark told Sandy that all of his money was tied up in the inheritance and that there was some big legal battle going on and that his hands were tied and there was just nothing that he could do. On top of these lies and the lavish spending habits, Clark also had a bit of a dark side that Sandy began to notice. He was controlling and manipulative and often just not very nice to her. Being a woman of faith and a believer in marriage, Sandy stuck it out with Clark despite the fact that she was massively unhappy in their relationship. About five years into the marriage, Sandy became pregnant with a baby girl and Clark became withdrawn. He wasn't particularly interested in having a child and he did not even bother to show up to meet his daughter until almost a full day after she had been born. Can you imagine? No, I would be furious if I was Sandy in a hospital having a baby and my husband was just nowhere to be found. I was irritated my husband was eating lunch around me when I wasn't allowed to eat. I can't imagine if he didn't even bother to show up. Oh, my goodness. So allegedly, once he laid his eyes on this new child, though, he became very smitten with her and started being more present at home. But it was on such an extreme level that it actually made Sandy feel like she was being shut out in place of this baby. Since Clark wasn't exactly a working man, Sandy had to return to her career and leave Clark at home to take on the role of stay-at-home dad. Clark's relationship with his child thrived, and the two became incredibly close. But their closeness started to become worrisome to Sandy, who felt that Clark was actually keeping the child too isolated and not allowing her to attend school or make friends her age, not to mention that he kept very loose rules for the girl and she was pretty much allowed to do whatever she wanted. At this point, Sandy had been suspicious of her husband for years. She never understood why he didn't have his own money, despite being the person who he claimed to be and why he couldn't find work. She eventually hired a PI to look into his background, hoping to glean some information about whether Clark was who he said he was. What she found out was shocking and confusing. The PI couldn't trace back any information on Clark Rockefeller past the year 1994, which at that time was about 13 years, of which she had actually been romantically involved with him for about 10 of those 13 years. When confronted with this information, Clark became very defensive and he refused to provide any explanation to his wife. What do you do? <laughs> hey, you're not a real person. Okay, prove it. I'm proving it. Okay. <laughs> like there's Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? There's just nothing like how yeah, how do you even prepare for that? I, I don't know. I, I don't even know what you would do to go forward though. Like Right, right, you know, right. Like Next step. this PI is telling you, yeah, there's no information on this person past a certain date, which is very strange, but yeah, like you said, like, okay, so now what's your next step? You know, what do you, what, what do you, what options do you even have at that point? And now the dangerous thing to me is that he knows that you know that something's not right and that can put people into danger in these kind of situations. So he insisted really that he is who he says he is. And despite being asked point blank, you know, if Clark Rockefeller was even his name, he was like, yeah, it, it is even though there's just no history of him whatsoever. Just the gall on this guy is pretty amazing. (laughs) It's similar, like you were talking when we talked to Ali Sweeney about your kid just lying to you, like when you're like, I can can prove it. It doesn't make sense when people just like dig their heels into things that are very easy. Wikipedia could prove this. So Sandy has enough of all of this nonsense and she files for divorce and threatens to take full custody of their daughter, Ray, unless Clark would start being honest and tell her exactly who he is. But Clark continued to dig in his heels, and he doubled down on his stance, stating that he would fight her for custody of the child. A messy divorce ensued in which Sandy had the upper hand. Obviously, she's 
a real person. <laughs> and she tells the judge that her husband could not even prove his own identity and that she should be granted full custody of Ray. The judge agreed, and not only did Sandra get custody, she also took their home in Boston as well as another property they had in New Hampshire. The good thing that Clark got out of this divorce was an $800,000 settlement, which Sandra paid to him in cash. Following the divorce, Sandy took Ray and moved to London, which wasn't much of an issue for visitation purposes since Clark was only granted three eight-hour visits per year in which he would be required to have a social worker present to supervise. Clark was furious and, according to his friends, devastated over losing his daughter in his life. He vowed to do anything to get her back, and that's when he began plotting an elaborate kidnapping scheme. July 27, 2008 was one of the scheduled visits that Clark had with Ray, but he had no intentions of returning her to his ex-wife. He had already concocted a plan to disappear with his daughter for good, and he was ready to put that plan into motion. Clark had used some of the $800,000 divorce settlement to purchase a home in Baltimore in cash under a new name of Chip Smith. He had also used some of the money to purchase a catamaran, which would be suitable for sailing all around the world, and he converted about $300,000 into gold coins. The rest he kept in cash. His plan was simple, and in his mind, it was foolproof. The only thing standing in the way of a lifetime of happiness with his child was that pesky social worker that would be looming over the two of them for the entire day. Clark had already set up his escape plan. He notified his limo driver that he and Ray would need a ride to Newport, Rhode Island, where the two of them were going to have lunch with a senator's son. He told the driver that he might need help ditching a clingy friend that might try to get into the limo, and the driver, who had already taken $3,000 for this particular ride, told Clark that it would not be a problem and nobody would get into the limo without his permission. Little did the driver know that Clark's clingy friend was actually the court-appointed social worker that was supervising his visit with his daughter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I feel like this is a very Boston conversation. No offense to anybody from Boston, but to be like, don't worry, no one that comes near this limo is going to get in the car. I feel like that's in movies. Every Mark Wahlberg yeah. movie, like, that <laughs> I mean, I guess if somebody pays you $3,000 to take them on a ride, like, I mean, it's $3,000. I would also be like, oh, I will stop anyone from getting into this car. I ask no questions. And also, this name <laughs> Chip Smith kind of kills me because, like, Smith, okay, that's like the most obvious fake name in the world. Obviously people have it, but it's the most, you know, one of the most popular last names in Chip. I'm not yeah. going to believe anyone's <laughs> name is Chip. <laughs> it just seemed like do better. Yeah. <laughs> you, you did Rockefeller before and now you're a Smith. I, I'm not following. <laughs> so this driver was told when and where to pick Clark and Ray up. And he knew that he would have to keep a lookout for this third wheel that Clark had mentioned. The father-daughter duo began the day as usual with plans to go ride the swan boats in the public garden. The limo pulled up along the side of the street, and in a quick movement, Clark shoved the social worker to the ground, flung open the door to the limo, and pulled Ray inside so quickly that she actually hit her head on the doorframe. The social worker clung to the handle of the door for several yards before he let go and reported the abduction to the police. Shortly after Clark had made his getaway with his daughter in tow, he told his driver to pull over and let them out so that he could take Ray to the local hospital and have her head looked at so that they could be sure that the bump she sustained was nothing serious. He told the driver to wait for them in a parking lot close to the hospital. Of course, this was all part of Clark's plan to disappear with the child, and he had absolutely no intentions of returning to that limo. 
Instead, he had already lined up a friend to pick them up and drive them to New York for $500, telling her that they had to catch a train so that they could get into a boat launch on Long Island by 8 p.m. Almost immediately after the friend dropped Clark and Ray off at Grand Central Terminal, she was contacted by a friend who asked if she had heard about the Amber Alert that was out on Clark's daughter. This poor woman had no idea that she had just been an accomplice to this kidnapping and I'm sure was absolutely horrified whenever she found that out. Okay, but side note, if someone offers to pay you $500 for a ride, something sketchy is going on. If you're friends with them and they're like $500, you're like, "Uh, gas is only 20. I'll give you 500. You should just go ahead and like text somebody to call 911. You're involved in something you should not be involved in. I mean, yeah, but boss from... Can you imagine asking someone to drive you from Boston to New York City, though? You'd have to offer them. That's a long way. That's not just like, hey, can you give me a ride up the street? Honestly, I don't know geography. (laughs) (laughs) I thought $20 was very reasonable in this case. It's only one inch on the map. What is that in miles? (laughs) So we have so much more to get into with this story. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. While I can pretend to be youthful with my internet memes, my eyes are really ratting me out. This year, for the first time when I went to the eye doctor, I was told I had an astigmatism resulting from an eye injury you guys might remember me talking about a few weeks ago. The doctor told me that I needed reading glasses and I could pick them out right this second, right in the office, no pressure. Luckily, I knew about Warby Parker and decided to start and end my glasses journey there. Warby Parker makes choosing glasses a cinch. We both took part in the free home try-on program. You take a little quiz on Warby Parker's site to figure out what frame shapes and colors and styles you like. Based on your answers, Warby Parker helps you choose five pairs of glasses and you can try them on for five days with no obligation to buy. The glasses ship free and it includes a prepaid shipping label for sending it back. I tried on all five pairs and the one I initially thought was the obvious favorite was not the one I chose once I had the options at home. And having options at home meant I could wear them to see not only what they looked like, but also what they felt like, which was just as important to me. When I first heard about Warby Parker, I loved the idea but assumed it would be insanely expensive. And luckily I was wrong. With Warby Parker, glasses start at just $95 and include prescription lenses. The lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. After placing my order, I went online to ask a question about shipping, which was insanely quick by the way, and ended up chatting with a lovely customer service agent named Tessa, who asked me if I wanted to add blue light filtering lenses to my prescription to help me while I am on the computer. Which means whether I'm reading a book, which is rare, or reading gossip sites, which I do daily, my eyes are covered with the blue light filtering lenses. Are you one of the cool kids with an iPhone X? If you are, make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. If you're ready to try out a new and fun way to get glasses, head to warbyparker.com moms to order your free home try-ons today. Again, for your free home try-ons, go to warbyparker.com slash moms. Mandy, you know what I hate? I hate watching my children wear clothes after I just finished the laundry. Just kidding. I'm never finished with the laundry. It's always there, taunting me, laughing at me. Well, screw you, laundry. Now I've got drops. While drops won't do the laundry for me, they do make doing the laundry easier. Drops Pods delivers powerful, eco-friendly cleaning products directly to your door, From laundry detergent pods to dishwasher detergent pods, they've got you covered. I love being able to just throw a pod in the washing machine or dishwasher, and since the pods are pre-measured, it makes it easy for me to have my 10-year-old help as well. 
Drops are never tested on animals because they aren't monsters. Drops is cruelty-free because they believe in kindness and not in taking harmful shortcuts. Drops is manufactured in the USA, and they are proud to offer effective green cleaning products manufactured right here in their own backyard. And I love that they are supporting local jobs, communities, small businesses, and fair wages. My favorite smell in the world is clean laundry, so much so that I can't believe my family hasn't submitted my name to that weird TLC show, My Strange Addiction, as much as I just go around sniffing our clean laundry. So I really love that Drops adds a dose of aromatherapy to their Drops detergents, and it's lightly scented with essential oils and botanical extracts. My laundry smells fresh and not all full of chemicals. And Drops has sensitive skin detergent pods. They are gentle, hypoallergenic detergents formulated for babies, both big and small, and for those with sensitive skin, eczema, and allergies. Drops products are packaged in the most sustainable way. Their plastic-free, compostable box doubles as the shipping container. The boxes pack up nicely and are a great way to store your detergent pods. When you subscribe to Drops, you can save an extra 20% with automatic Drops wash plans. There is no membership and no gotchas. You can skip, delay, or modify your order at any time. And the best part is, there is free shipping on all orders. Visit dropps.com slash murder30. That's dropps.com slash murder30 and enter murder30 to get an extra 30% off your first order of convenient, plastic-free, eco-friendly cleaning. Every drops counts. And now back to the episode. So after Clark has kidnapped Ray, detectives contact Sandy and inform her that they've been searching Clark's name in the national databases and they're coming up empty-handed, which we know this because the guy doesn't really exist. They ask her if she could provide him with his license number or his social security number, and she told them that she did not have any of this information. The detectives ran down the list of acceptable forms of identification on Clark, and each time Sandy said she did not have it. It seemed there was really no identification on this man at all. The next thing detectives did was to contact the Rockefeller family themselves to find out if they could learn anything about this mystery man that was allegedly in their bloodline. It did not surprise Sandy when the Rockefeller family spokesperson told the police that there was no such person named Clark that was a direct descendant of John D. Rockefeller. At this point, Clark's life story really is just beginning to unravel. Police have located a friend of Clark's that had seen him the night before the abduction. The friends shared a glass of wine together, and the glass that Clark had used had not yet been washed from the night before. You know you got to feel good and bad about that to be like, well, (laughs) I didn't do the dishes. I normally do, but this time I didn't, and look how it works out. So they were able to lift a fingerprint off the glass and send it to the lab to be analyzed, and what they learned was shocking. Clark's fingerprint came back as belonging to a man named Christopher Crow, which was an alias for a man named Christopher Chichester who was a man that just so happened to be a person of interest in a murder case in the state of California over 20 years earlier in 1985. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you got to be running from something if you just keep changing your name, like, over and over and over again. But, like, I'm sure murder was, like, not the top of their list of things that could have happened. In the meantime, a photo of Clark was circulated in the media as it pertained to the abduction case, and that's when the tips started to roll in. Police were contacted by numerous people who had known Clark under numerous names. There was Chris Gerhardt, a film student. Christopher Chichester, who claimed to be descended from British royalty. With a name like that, you gotta be something. Christopher Crowe, who was a TV producer. And of course, many knew him as Clark Rockefeller. With each of these identities were elaborate stories about the man behind them. But one thing was for sure, none of these names were the true identity of this professional con artist. 
His real name was Christian Karl Gerhardsreiter, and his story began not in the United States, but in West Germany, where he was born on February 21st, 1961. When he was 17 years old, he told his family that he wanted to move to the U.S. to pursue an education and to become rich and famous. Don't we all? He entered into a foreign exchange program and moved in with the Savios family, who lived in Berlin, Connecticut, while attending college. At first, the arrangement worked out well, and Christian was happy to be in the U.S. working towards his goals, but his attitude quickly devolved into one of entitlement and laziness. He would frequently insult the Savios family and refuse to do anything to help out around the home in which he was living for free. He told the family that doing chores was beneath him because he was the son of European aristocrats. He spent much of his time at the Savio's residence watching reruns of Gilligan's Island, of all things, and obsessing over the character of Thurston Howell III, a wealthy billionaire with a Bostonian accent. He began taking on traits and mannerisms of the TV show character and completely immersed himself in the idea of becoming just like him. Eventually, the Savio's family had enough of Christian's disrespect and asked him to leave, but Christian was unwilling to return to Germany, and he had another plan up his sleeve. He enrolled himself in the University of Milwaukee, seeking a degree in filmography. He was highly intelligent and did very well in school, all while learning the American culture and learning how to carry himself with sophistication. A fellow student at the university named Amy Dunkey caught his eye and the two became fast friends. He eventually convinced her to marry him, with his goal being to gain a path to citizenship by obtaining a green card. The marriage was not based in love whatsoever, and it was done very quickly and really without any thought behind it, I would say. This is like a 90-day um, fiancé situation. I'm so excited yeah, right now. It, it really is. Christian moved on very quickly once he had gotten what he wanted out of this marriage. He took off and moved to San Marino, California, where he assumed the identity of Christopher Chichester, descendant of royalty. Under this new alias, he submerged himself into the wealthy community by joining a church and befriending many of the elite residents that lived there. He particularly focused his attention on the wealthy widows of the area and would wine and dine them, convincing them that he was one of them. Part of his lie was that he was a big shot film producer who had been working on numerous Alfred Hitchcock films, and he went to great lengths to make this story believable, even carrying a fake script under his arm everywhere he went. I don't know why that like a little piece of information just like it's awesome. Got, it just got me. It's just, like he has his props ready. But yeah. when was Alfred Hitchcock films were still Alfred Hitchcock films rather were still happening at this time? Like, I feel like I guess in the 80s. Yeah. Isn't that like. Oh, man. When? I, Isn't that when they were happening? Yeah. Well, there's a chance I'm editing this because I'm pretty sure I'm sounding like an idiot. I thought Alfred Hitchcock movies were like 60s. Oh, I wouldn't know. The movie Birds and stuff? No, they're black and white movies. He was not producing anything. I'm going to Google <laughs> this and I'll keep it in if I'm right. But if I'm not, <laughs> you'll never hear this. <laughs> During this time that he spent living here in San Marino, California, he met a woman named Didi Sohas, who had been married several times and had a habit for drinking heavily. She suffered from a few health problems, which made her a very easy target for Christian to take advantage of. She eventually invited him to move into her carriage house, which I'm not really sure what a carriage house is. It sounds like a fancy way of saying mother-in-law quarters. That's like the non-Florida way to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, the two of them spent a lot of time together and became close friends. He was living on her property rent-free. 
Mm. Things were going very well for Christian and his fake life until Dee Dee's son, John Sohas, and daughter-in-law, Linda, suddenly came upon rough financial times and needed to come live with Dee Dee for a little while. Right from the get-go, John and Linda had very bad vibes from Christian and expressed their concerns to Dee Dee, telling her that something was not right about this man, and they feared that he was only getting close to her so that he could weasel his way into her bank account and eventually obtain her property. John and Linda had done some research of their own, and they had figured out that Christopher Chichester was not a real person and was definitely not this big film producer that he claimed to be. They had watched credits and looked him up and tried to confront Dee Dee with this information that there was no such man who appeared to have worked on any of these films. But Dee Dee did not take to this news well at all and refused to believe it. She told her son and daughter-in-law that she was sure there must be an explanation and that this man had been living in her home would not lie to her. She said that she knew him well and they were friends and that they were just being ridiculous to accuse him of what they were accusing him of, which was making up an entire fake identity. Yeah. Of course, Christian was not happy that this young couple was onto him and he worried that they would expose his true identity. Then one day in February of 1985, John and Linda Sohas vanished. When Dee Dee realized that her son and daughter-in-law had mysteriously gone missing, she brought her concerns up to Christian, who assured her that everything was probably fine and they probably just left because they were upset about the arrangement with him living at the house. Shortly after the couple went missing, Christian moved out of Dee Dee's home and did his own disappearing act. John and Linda had actually previously mentioned that they would be traveling overseas on some sort of top secret government mission with John's job. So for months, it was assumed that they had just gone off on that trip and that they would be home eventually. For a while, friends and family actually received postcards from John and Linda that seemed to indicate that they were, in fact, alive and well. But when the postcards stopped coming, Dee Dee alerted authorities that the couple was missing. At this point, it had been about five months since they had last been seen. When the police questioned Dee Dee about the details of these disappearances, she gave them Christopher Chichester's name. And of course, he was long gone at this point. But the police looked into him and learned, of course, that he did not exist. Christopher Chichester had since moved on to become Christopher Crow and was now living across the country back in Connecticut, where he told people that he was a film producer that was ready to switch careers and get into the banking industry. He managed to obtain a position as an executive at a brokerage firm, but once the company realized that he had given them a fake social security number, he was fired. So this is an interesting part of the story as well, because the social security number that he had actually provided to this company that he was working for belonged to the infamous serial killer, David Berkowitz. <laughs> I don't know how you even get that information. That's what I was going to say. Like, how do you get that? It's one thing to... Yeah, how would you find that? It still was a social security number. You but if just... you're flying under the radar, why would you use the social security number of a serial killer? I mean, he wasn't using it. <laughs> <laughs> What's he doing? While he was living in Connecticut, Christian made a huge slip up and attempted to sell a Nissan that belonged to John and Linda Sohas, which set off alarm bells to police who attempted to pay him a visit in 1988. But at that point, he was gone again, and he would not resurface until 1992 when he was living in New York City as Clark Rockefeller. I wish I could say that the story doesn't get any crazier, but it does. So stick around through one more ad break and we will get right back into it.
The spring 2019 FabFit Fun Box is out now. The FabFit Fun Box is a fun way to try out tons of products that you either didn't know were a thing or you knew they were a thing that you wanted, but maybe on its own it seemed a little bit pricey. If you haven't heard of FabFitFun, oh, let us tell you the ways of my favorite box subscription. FabFitFun boxes are delivered four times a year with full-size beauty, fashion, fitness, and wellness products for just $49.99 a box, which is honestly a steal considering all that you're getting. FabFitFun brings you items like my favorites, the Manicadar Champagne Body Scrub that retails for $34.95, and the Dr. Brandt Skincare Eye Depuffing Gel that retails for $42. My sister is having a baby in a few months, and what would be better for a new mom covered in baby pee and spit up than a FabFitFun box? It would also be a great gift for a kid going away to college, or even as a birthday gift for someone in your life that is notoriously difficult to buy for. Better yet, get one for yourself. I love my Sip by Swell water bottle. It's both beautiful and useful, and has a retail value of $19.99. What is it about a pretty water bottle that just makes you want to drink more water? I guess it's science. I love that you aren't getting junk in the FabFitFun boxes. There are a few things that all members get, but the best part is that you can customize your box and choose from different options for several of the products. The only problem is that sometimes it's hard to choose from so many great products. I love, love, love that all products are full size, so there are no samples of anything. And every box is guaranteed to have over $200 plus in retail value. The 2019 spring box that we both have and depending on which products you actually get, has a total retail value of between $347 and $354.99. Sign up for FabFitFun today. These boxes always sell out. Use our code MOMS to get $10 off your first box. Go to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well-lived. Use promo code MOMS to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 for only $39.99. Again, go to fabfitfun.com and use our code MOMS to get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. Winter is not coming. Winter is going away. Yay! And with that, the winter blues are coming to an end. It's finally time to get back into a routine that empowers you to feel your healthiest. Give yourself an extra boost this season, whether you're looking for more energy, better sleep, to help manage stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest. And you can do that with Care Of's personalized vitamins and supplements. Care Of offers a fun online quiz that asks you questions about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and it only takes about five minutes to find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. The thing I really enjoyed about the Care Of quiz was that I was able to be really honest with my needs and wants for a healthy lifestyle while admitting that I may drink three Diet Cokes a day just to survive, or five. Either way, I didn't have to see the judgmental look of a doctor while saying it. Care Of's quiz didn't judge me, and sometimes you just need a win. Your personalized Care Of subscription box gets sent right to your door every month with personalized daily packs, great for a busy on-the-go lifestyle or just for those of us that are a little lazy and a little more forgetful. I love the funny quotes and sayings on each personalized pack addressed specifically to me. There are also vegan and vegetarian supplement options available to match your dietary needs. I really love that Care Of donates a portion of every sale towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. For 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter MOMS50. Again, for 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter code MOMS50. And now back to the episode. So Christian Gerhardt's writer has successfully pulled off living under numerous different aliases since his arrival in the U.S. in the late 1970s. Here's a question I have for you, Mandy. 
I read somewhere that, okay, so this guy's born in Germany, right? He didn't leave till he was 17. I always read right. that like the first six years of your life is when your accent and like the way you speak kind of comes together. So if you lived in the UK for your first six years and moved here after, like you would have a British accent. So I was kind of amazed with this. Like he had to have been on guard to say you're a Rockefeller, but you were born in Germany. Like, are you always using that using this American accent? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Well, that's one thing like they were when they were talking about when he was living with the Savios family when he first came over, all he really did was study like the American way and American culture and American like mannerisms and the way that you speak. And so, I mean, he was just a con artist all around. So I definitely think that he was just speaking with an American accent. But that's so crazy to do that constantly. Like that just seems yeah. so extreme to me whenever I thought about that. I'm like, wait, he didn't move here till he was 17. Like he did not have an American accent. So like while you're married, you had to be pretending you have an English or an American accent. That's crazy to me. I mean, yeah. Well, I actually know a, one of our good friends is married to a woman who is from Germany. And she was telling me um, one time I was talking to her that they actually take English like from a pretty early age. Like they learn English in school. Okay. So so maybe he actually already did kind of know some English. Okay. That makes more sense. But I just thought like being married, that would be crazy. That was a very long rabbit trail. Sorry. It's been stuck in my head since we were talking about that before. <laughs> so back to the story and away from my accents. The idea to become Clark Rockefeller actually came to this guy when he was living in New York and working on Wall Street. He had called a swanky restaurant to make a reservation and was told that they didn't have any open seats for that night. And in that moment, he decided that he would pretend to be a Rockefeller to get a reservation. This guy kills me. Right? Like, just, that's so brazen. Although, like, now I kind of want to try that, honestly. <laughs> I don't know what celebrity I would try to do. and then, But then you have to go in and pe pretend to be them, like... Mariah Carey and you're like sorry Mariah Carey canceled <laughs> it's definitely just me now but yeah that's oh so brazen so from that moment on he was I love this James Frederick Mills Clark Rockefeller yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a, like a far cry from Chip Smith <laughs> so, so he used his name and identity to charm and impress the wealthiest circles in the city in 1995, he met Sandra Boss at a cocktail party, and she was drawn in by his charm and his prestigious last name. In the midst of Christian's new life, developments were happening back in California in connection with the disappearance of John and Linda Sohas. Dee Dee had sold her property sometime in that nine-year period since she had last seen her son and daughter-in-law, and in May of 1994, the new owners had hired a company to dig in the backyard so that they could install a swimming pool. During the excavation, the workers uncovered human remains, along with a flannel shirt and blue jeans. The remains were believed to have been that of John, and authorities further believed that the mystery man that had been living in the carriage house under the name of Christopher Chichester had something to do with it. What? Can you imagine yeah. if they never wanted a pool? <laughs> you know, nobody would know. Yeah, I just think that is so crazy the way that they ended up coming about that, like that somebody was going to put a pool in there. I, What would you even do if I, – I, I don't even know. If that happened at my house, somebody came to like dig up the yard and then they like found a, a <laughs> Hi, were you missing remains? a person? Because <laughs> there's somebody back here. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And imagine being yeah. the people digging. Like that's not something you see every day. That's just horrific all the way around. 
So the skull they find has has edit has telltale signs of blunt force trauma, and it was believed that he had been hit in the head twice as well as being stabbed six times. The body was then cut up into three parts. Detectives got permission from the new homeowners. Of course they did, because who's going to be like, no, sorry, I'm not going to, you can't do anymore. You found your bones, get out of here. Um, so yeah. the detectives got to look into the carriage house where they ripped up the carpet and searched for signs of old blood. They located three different spots where blood had been pooled at some point, and forensic testing confirmed that the blood did belong to John. Police never located any blood or remains belonging to Linda, but now the belief was that Christian had killed them both and must have disposed of Linda's remains in a different location. I thought that was kind of interesting, too, that it you would think that that would have been done together. I don't know. Now you have yeah. two crime scenes? That's, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it is interesting. So now the search was on to find Christopher Chichester, but since there was no paper trail on this fake person, they had little to go on when it came to finding him. And so he remained a person of interest in the murder for several more years before the case broke wide open when Christian, a.k.a. Clark, kidnapped his own daughter in 2008. We mentioned in the beginning of the story that Christian had planned to end up in Baltimore with his child and had purchased a home under the alias Chip Smith. And so when Christian's photo began to circulate in the media, along with the Amber Alert, many of the real estate agents that he had worked with in Baltimore started contacting the authorities to let them know that they had been in contact with this man who had apparently made quite an impression on them. Now that detectives had a new, more current name that Christian was operating under, they began to dig deeper and learned about the sailboat that he had purchased and also which marina he had the boat docked at. So the FBI makes this genius plan to lure Christian away from his daughter and to arrest him for the abduction. So what they did was they surrounded his home and they called the... Um, the marina, the dock manager, and and got him in on this whole um, scheme they were going to do. So they asked the dock manager to call Christian and say, hey, your sailboat is taking on water. You need to come down here and take a look at it. So they knew that that would be like a surefire way because obviously anyone who owns a boat is going to be very concerned if it's starting to take on right. water and they, they're going to want to go check it out. So they knew that this was a pretty likely way that they could get him to come out of his house. So – as soon as he walked out of his front door to go check on this, the many FBI agents surrounded him and, and kind of wrestled him to the ground. And then even more agents went inside and got his daughter Ray out safely. Something that I thought was funny when the when he walked outside and these FBI agents were out there, there was a couple of agents that were just in plain clothes so that, you know, he wouldn't be scared of and you know run back inside of his house so they were just like hey clark where are you going and he told them that he was going to get a turkey sandwich oh so, so disappointing for him <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and at that moment like i said they all swarmed in and they got him and they got the little girl out of the house and everything was the day was saved so christian was put on trial for the kidnapping charges and he was also charged with furnishing a fake name to law enforcement, which his lawyers claimed he did not do for any dishonest purpose, which I don't know how you can claim that. The only reason you have a fake identity is dishonesty. Well, not That's like the basis of having a fake identity. I feel not like not necessarily. Sometimes people try and get away from other people like or something in Breaking well, I mean, Bad or something. Okay. Like okay. Outside of being in the witness protection program, I don't really see any reason why somebody would actually use a fake, completely fake name. Okay, that's fair. Actually, my husband has a friend and he's had two different fake names and he's not done anything nefarious that I know of. 
I can't say that his you name. Know of. Well, <laughs> I don't know. But one of his names is just a letter and a number. And I don't want to say which two it is, but like that was actually his name. And nothing nefarious, Mandy. He wanted to change the pace. He wanted a letter and he wanted a number. And guess what? Now he's got it and you have to call him by that because legally that is his name. <laughs> Makes his signature very easy though. <laughs> I think you've told me this story. Yeah. <laughs> so close to saying his name. So during the parental kidnapping trial, defense experts testified that Christian was diagnosed with delusional disorder, grandiose type, and narcissistic personality disorder. He was found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to five years in prison. But he still had one more trial to go, and that was for the first-degree murder of John Sohus. On March 15, 2011, L.A. County prosecutors officially charged him in the murder. Christian's defense team argued that he was innocent and that John was more likely murdered by his wife, Linda, who was still just considered a missing person since her remains had never been found. They argued that she murdered her husband on February 8th, 1985, and then just took off. Honestly, that just, I can, yeah, that's, I can see how they would go with that because that makes a lot of sense. And that is actually a really good defense. Yeah, I, think. I was thinking the same thing when I read it. I was like, oh, that, yeah, you've got no proof he did anything. And now she's gone. You know, it makes sense that they would use that. The jurors got to hear all about Christian's many aliases and this lifetime of deception, as well as the fact that he had been in possession of a vehicle that belonged to this deceased couple. And on April 10th, 2013, Christian was convicted of first degree murder. And on April 15th of that year, he was sentenced to 27 years to life, which was, of course, the maximum sentence. He has maintained his innocence throughout the last six years and is currently serving his sentence at San Quentin State Prison. This case is so fascinating to me. The whole story is... It really is. And like there is just so much on this case. I probably could have thrown in... I mean, a, a lot of it is just... Even like the extraneous information in this case is really, really interesting. So I tried to put in as much as I could, but just for time's sake and for everyone to yeah. not have to listen to us droning on about this for another 30 minutes, I had to cut it down a little bit. Yeah. But it is such an interesting and fascinating case. And I'm actually kind of upset that I missed the documentary that was on Netflix. It was called My Friend Rockefeller. And I actually even remember when it was on Netflix yeah. and I remember seeing it and like, passed it up because I was like, it doesn't look that interesting. Well, little did I. It is extremely interesting. Honestly, um, basically any Netflix documentary is interesting. Like even if you think you're not interested in it, you watch it and you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm totally yeah. on with this. But this case was actually like there was so many great, great news like articles I read, like Vanity Fair right. did a piece on it. Like it was all these huge like publications that were doing, you know, this story. And just all of it is just incredibly fascinating. Everybody who wrote about it had like different information. It was so hard for me to pick and choose like what things to even yeah. mention in here. It's just so much. So I hope you guys loved that story as much as I did. Yeah. And you did a great job with the story, Mandy, putting it together. It was nice little Aww. twists and turns. Aww. And all Aww. That. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as usual, before we get out of here, we're going to do our last thing before we go segment. And I actually love these last thing before we goes that, I, that we have picked for this week. I hope Melissa likes them as well. Paula D. Mayo wants to know, what do we love to play with our kids and what do we hate to play with our kids? Oh my gosh, how dare you ever think I don't like playing with my children 24-7? That's so <laughs> rude and something I would never do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I love like coloring. I'm terrible at it. My daughter's very, very good at art stuff, but I like doing that kind of stuff where you can sit, color, trace, paint, Play-Doh, all those. If I can be sitting down, 
that is the thing I want to do. Or board games. I like doing all that stuff. I hate playing pretend. I do not want to be the yeah. worst. And like you're always given a role. It's never a role you want. I always try to be like, it's just something ridiculous. My daughter's like, no, you're going to be a firefighter, but you're going to be stuck in a tree and nobody's going to come find you. And then I'll just pretend to be a firefighter stuck in a tree. And guess what? Somebody finds me and then I'm supposed to run around the house. I hate it. I hate it so much. And I don't think <laughs> I've like ever been not vocal about that with my kids. I'm like, can we just, just anything else? Let's just do anything else. And I like outside stuff. I mean, to a point, let's not get crazy. I don't want to get dirt on me, but I like playing kickball and not kickball, soccer and stuff like that. But that's it. There's some really crappy things you have to do with kids. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't mind playing like I will play board games or anything like that. Anything that is also like at least somewhat mentally stimulating to me I can get down with that I like doing that like you said I like to color I like to color anyway even by myself so I I get down with some coloring but yeah I hate playing pretend and I don't like doing anything that requires me to like sit on the floor and play with little things like I don't like to play with cars or action figures or like you know Like, because I have boys, and so they like to get their little action figures and be like, hey, mom, like, hold Spider-Man and make him fight my Batman. And I'm like, okay, you know, I just, I'm not into it. It doesn't do anything for me. (laughs) That's Um, so sad. (laughs) Why is it sad? Nobody likes doing these things. I'm convinced of it. I don't know. Maybe someone does. No, it's terrible. It's 100% terrible. But I get it. Like, I totally get You're just like, uh. but my kids, I always do it wrong. Like, whatever you do, it's wrong. So I'm like, well, what's the point? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't like pushing cars around on a little thing. I don't like doing anything like that. I can I like building stuff. So like if they want to build Legos, I like to do it. I don't like to freestyle build Legos. I like to actually follow the directions and build a Lego set. But that's really it. I mean, the stuff I like to do with my kids, I feel like is more like active stuff. Like I like to get in the pool with them. I like to like take them fun places. (laughs) So that's pretty much it. I just, I'm, I, I am never, I've always been very honest, not with my kids, but I've always been honest with other, other people and like other parents and friends of mine that I'm just not that kind of mom that like plays things. Like I don't want to play with toys. I just, I don't, I just, I'm not into it. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't have fun with it. So I try to do other fun things with my kids that don't involve like playing like in that. And to be fair, we're home with our kids 24 seven. So there's just a lot of time we have to fill in the day. And then you could be stuck playing with little things for hours and hours and hours. And you just can't let that happen. I've got like, I have put it on the timer for some (laughs) games. I'm like, I only got five minutes. (laughs) I can only do this for five minutes. (laughs) Okay. So Megan T wants to know, I saw this question a couple weeks back and I thought it was super interesting because I don't know if you do, but she wants to know if we have ever had a near death experience. Hmm. I'm going to let you go first. And then if you have one. Yeah, I think you do. So so near death experience in terms of like I like died and saw the other side and came back oh, gosh, to life. I don't think it no. meant that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm taking it literally like have you ever almost died? So actually, yes, I have. So when I was eleven, my appendix burst and it was misdiagnosed for a very long time by several doctors. Um, They first told my parents that I had a kidney infection and they had me on taking antibiotics and they kept sending me home. That's so crazy. I remember this like so vividly. It was the most pain I've ever been in in my life. Like I, I was just like doubled over in pain, couldn't even walk. And I started getting like really, really high fever. And um, my dad finally was like, 
we're taking her to the emergency room and we are not leaving. Like, they're going to have to admit her. Like, I was so deathly ill. I, I was like hallucinating is how high my fever oh my went. Gosh. I was so sick. Of course, being 11, like, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking like my parents are taking care of me. Oh, and they were, <laughs> they weren't, you know, but, but I'm thinking like, why am I yeah. like literally feel like I'm dying? Well, it turns out I was, my dad like drug me to the emergency room, like forced them to take a, another look at me. And finally what it was actually not even a doctor. It was a nurse who was like, Oh, has anybody like checked to see if your appendix is is burst or or is like, you know, ruptured or anything? So then finally they figured that out. They did like a little ultrasound and they were like, oh, yeah, this is really, really bad. So I had emergency surgery and this is like right before Christmas. And um, they like took out they ha I had ended up getting like two incisions, like the one where they took my appendix out. And then I had another incision underneath that where they had to put in a drainage tube because the infection was so severe. Like oh my they gosh. had to cut out a piece of my like lower intestine. And like then they had to like do all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I had this drainage tube like pumping out all of this <gasps> nasty like infection after the surgery. And they told my parents like when I came out of surgery that they were putting me on the three strongest antibiotics like known at the time and like if it didn't work and like the infection didn't go away there was nothing else they could do and I was in the hospital for three weeks and finally got released on Christmas Eve and I had lost like so much weight it was it was it was just a crazy, crazy situation. But yeah. And so then like, of course, my my dad was so great. Like he stayed in the hospital with me the entire time, did not leave my side, stayed with me every night. And of course, my mom had to take care of my little sister. So she wasn't at the hospital as much, but it was so scary. And so then I didn't really realize how serious it was until I was a little bit older. And then my mom was like, no, we actually were worried that you we might lose you that's like during crazy. that. So yeah. So that's the closest I've ever been. Thankfully, well, Mandy, that's nothing crazy. Very has ever close. <laughs> Your first like initial reaction was just like, no, not close. And it's like, no, you almost definitely <laughs> died. Oh, my gosh. Um, mine is not as scary. Well, I had to have lung surgery a few years ago. And <laughs> I like this story because it's very Melissa. I had to have lung surgery. I was having lots of lung collapses, which is a fun thing to have when you have endometriosis. I had it like in my lung. So it was collapsing a few times. So I finally have this surgery. I can barely breathe. And was like very, very desperate for this surgery and knew like going in, it was very risky and all this stuff. But I was like, I can't live like this. And it sounds dramatic, but I had like a small kid. So it was really, really crappy. And I was like, whatever you have to do. Well, I went to go have this surgery. And I think I've said this in our Facebook group. My thing with, I've had several surgeries, but anytime I have surgery, I always say poop is the last word I say to anybody because I'm convinced that God will not <laughs> let me die if that's the last word I say. <laughs> <laughs> and like so far, I mean, I'm doing really well with this. So I always say poop. So I said poop to my husband and then they rolled me back into surgery. And I remember waking up in, I mean, in excruciating pain in the ICU. I was in the ICU for like five days and everybody had halos over their head. Like it looked, they were all glowing whenever I looked and I thought like, okay, I've died. <laughs> like I definitely just died. <laughs> and it was just terrible. And I, it was super, super, super painful. Um, but I was like, the problem was my blood pressure kept dropping the whole time and I already have low blood pressure. These are really sad stories, Mandy, <laughs> but my blood pressure kept <laughs> dropping and it would make me pass out. So they would give me something to, you know, spike my blood pressure up. But I remember my husband would call me cause you could only have to be in the ICU for so long with you. And I'd be on the phone and I'd just pass out and they would like, the nurse would like come and like stand by me and like shake me to kind of keep me awake because I just literally would pass out. So I didn't almost die, but I thought I was almost going to die. And I 
definitely thought yeah. I died when I came out of surgery and like asked all these weird questions. It was weird. But my husband was great. He stayed in the um you can't stay in the ICU with somebody. So I like apparently asked him to stay, even though he couldn't. And he stayed in like the waiting room where nobody's allowed to stay and just slept in a chair every night. And I had no idea what was going on. So I'm like, you could have gone home and I would have never known. Maybe he did. Maybe he lied. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was long and sort of depressing, Aww. but I, I like the story. It ended up well. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. Well, now you guys know. More than you should. Crazy med- it's a lot. Crazy medical things have happened yeah. to us. All right. So last one. This one will probably be quick. So Kimberly D wants to know, what is our favorite fast food item? Oh, gosh. Do you have one? I know. What's yours? I have, a, I have a couple, actually. So I am a big, big fan of a, a bean burrito with sour cream from Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell. I know it's terrible and it's garbage and it's just not even human food, but I freaking love it. So that's my go-to for that. And then my other top favorite is a spicy chicken deluxe sandwich from Chick-fil-A. Nice. Yeah, I like the number one from Chick-fil-A with cheese, just the fried chicken, whatever, with Colby Jack cheese. Yeah, that's probably like my number one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, yeah. I li- I will eat something from any place you bring me, but that's like my go-to. That's like what I crave and what I want. So yeah, short and sweet. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode and we will see you next week for another yes, one. Yes, and we have um, on Patreon, if you are on Patreon, patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast, we just uploaded our episode on the Barefoot Bandit. And that is one of my favorite ones that we've ever done. So if you are interested in that story, it's up there now. Perfect. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.